I reckon I've been pulled over like 10 times since January because my car is flagged and I have major anxiety because they'll follow me for like a few streets and then they'll put their light on and I freak out. And the last time I got pulled over, I had to do a breathalyzer and you know, you have to breathe to the beep. I had to do it three times because I was panicking so much and he's going, you have to keep breathing. I'm going, I'm trying. I can never breathe long enough for those things. (gasps) I was panicking. Call for all of us to recognize and acknowledge the fact of occupation, to rethink the received colonial settler narrative. listening to Deadly Justice with Sarush and Tallulah. Good afternoon, you're listening to Deadly Justice. Today we're talking about driving and the criminal justice system. Did you know, Tallulah, in WA, you can't be sentenced for a term of imprisonment less than six months? That's pretty full on. Yeah, so let's imagine you've got a, um, a bit of a record and you, you get picked up for driving unlicensed and a magistrate decides instead of pursuing another option other than prison to imprison you you have to be in prison for six months as a minimum six months in one day correct yes so um what does that mean that means that for people who have driven unlicensed they can end up in prison where you can imagine a whole range of other penalties would have been more appropriate right yeah 100 percent. essentially getting a license is really difficult And the process that you have to go through to get a license is just lengthy, unnecessary, not very culturally appropriate. It leaves out people with poor literacy and numeracy. So let's draw that out a little bit. So you said um, lengthy. Let's start with that. Why why is that an issue? So getting your license is really uh, difficult. Well, first of all, you have to pay the fee and you have to do the theory test for the learners and the theory test is not always worded in a very easy way to understand so people who can't really read and write English very well or English is a second or third language um, it can be quite confusing and difficult and hang on what about how many traffic lights are there in Broome well exactly how many traffic lights are there in Kununurra I think there's one is from there? what I recall yeah at the, at the bridge and oh that's right Lake, that's right that's Lake right Lake so, I mean, you can see how is doing a driving test, which makes you talk about traffic lights. How is it going to have relevance to your day-to-day life? Well, I mean, it won't, especially if you're driving in remote community and remote areas where you live and you work. Traffic lights are non-existent. So Roundabouts are non-existent. Let's break it down a bit more. You mentioned as well that there were some cultural pressures. What do you mean when you say that? There are cultural pressures that, you know, make people drive unlicensed. So the cultural obligation is much more important than the obligation to follow the law. It seems to be the case in the Kimberley. So if somebody needs to get from point A to B, whoever is driving is obliged, even if they're not licensed, to take this person home or drive them somewhere. And I mean, for me, one of the most powerful aspects of that is that it's a uh, expression of sovereignty. So, you know, we're in, an, we're in a country that's grappling with the idea that there are different sovereignties. And so the idea that people are obeying different laws uh, in different ways, instead of the system, the legal system freaking out about that, a different way would be to see how the two systems can work together best. Yeah, this conflict is not helpful. It should be complementary in order to work best with people. 
So, I mean, I think we can think about some practical things. So you can imagine making the driving tests more appropriate to living on country and living remotely and living regionally. And for people who don't speak English as a, as a first language? 100%. And you can imagine that the testing should be more flexible, where they test should be more flexible. The problem is the decision-making happens out of Perth, just as in other shows we talk about happens out of Canberra, and it doesn't fit people's needs up here. Yeah, so even living... Living remote, you think about having access to a registered car that's roadworthy that you need to be able to do your practical test in. It's just unrealistic. People can't provide their own cars. It's difficult. Then, you know, there's all these barriers to be able to actually get your license. The whole process is just unrealistic. And I think there's a whole bunch of other things, for example, because of the history of policing in, in Aboriginal towns and communities in Aboriginal Australia, there is a mistrust of police. People are scared to get on the road because they're worried about being targeted. Wouldn't you say that's true? Yes. Yeah, so as we heard earlier, that was myself talking about how I'm constantly pulled over. Um, and, you know, police are, are a big image of anxiety for myself. So, look, we've got a guest today. Who are we talking to? Alice Barter, who is um, the managing solicitor of Aboriginal Legal Services. And she's written a few papers and done a whole lot of research on driving in places like the Kimberley, Pilbara and Northern Territory. And she talks a lot about the reasons why driving offences are so common. And maybe also some, some, some things that government can do to make it easier and what the implications of that is. I mean, why all this matters is if people shouldn't be in prison for driving unlicensed and if we can cause a separation so people aren't going into prison for driving unlicensed, you'd reduce the rate of people and Aboriginal people going into the criminal justice system. Well, again, it links back to our, our last show as well, fines and imprisonment. You know, incarceration rates are so high because people are getting charged for things that shouldn't be criminal offences. You know, driving without a licence is very different to driving recklessly or under the influence. So we're just going to cut to a song now. We're going to listen to one of the classics, Tracy Chapman's Fast Car. Is it 
fast enough so we can fly away. You gotta make a decision. Leave tonight or live and die this way. So I remember when we were driving, driving in your car. Speed so fast it felt like I was drunk. City lights day out before us, and your arm felt nice wrapped around my shoulder. And I, I had a feeling that I belonged. Someone, be someone You got a fast car We go cruising, entertain ourselves Still ain't got a job Now work in the market as a checkout girl I know things will get better You'll find work and I'll get promoted We'll move out of the shelter Buy a bigger house and live in the suburbs I remember when we were driving, driving in your car. Speed so fast, it felt like I was drunk. City lights stay out before us, and your arm felt nice wrapped around my shoulder. And I, I had a feeling that I belonged. I, I had a feeling I could be someone, be someone, be someone. Get a fast car. I got a job that pays all our bills. Instead of drinking, they got the boss and more your friends than you do your kids. I'd always hope for better. Thought maybe together you and me find it. I got no plans, I ain't going nowhere. Take your fast car and keep on driving. So I remember when we were driving, driving in your car. So fast, I felt like I was drunk. City lights stay out before us. Your arm felt nice wrapped around my shoulder. And I, I had a feeling that I belonged. I, I had a feeling I could be someone, be someone, be someone. You are listening to Deadly Justice with Talula and Sarush. Welcome back to the show. We have our guest for this week's show now. We're speaking to Alice Barter, who is the managing solicitor of the civil and the human rights team of the Aboriginal Legal Service of WA. Welcome to the show, Alice. Hi, Sarush. Thank you. So, first of all, can you tell us a little bit about your experience? Um, we've asked you in because we know you're, you've done a fair bit of research looking into driving matters for Aboriginal people in remote Australia. Can you tell us, give us some background? Yeah, sure. I worked at the Aboriginal Legal Service in, based in Headland um, and travelled around the Pilbara representing people back in 2010. And so, since that time, I have been looking into the issue of driver licences for Aboriginal people in the Pilbara. Um, when I was a criminal lawyer appearing on the long list in the magistrate's court, I found that a lot of people were going to jail for driving without a valid licence and that it was really um, unfair. It seemed quite disproportionate, so it uh, didn't seem like people were really doing much wrong but still ending up in jail and it made me um, really worried and wanted to see what I could do about that issue. 
And so what did you do? We've seen some, some really interesting research of yours. Yeah, I did some research as part of my um, master's in criminology. And so I spoke to a few different people involved in the criminal justice system in the Pilbara. I asked them what were some of the um, reasons why people didn't have a driver's license. And then also what some of the reasons why people needed to drive because I think it's quite different why people drive in the regions compared to in the city. Why are some of the reasons people don't have a driver's licence? Yeah, so there's quite a few um, different reasons and depending obviously on the region and on the family. But it seems from my research that there's overall just a um, sort of a bit of a culture of people just not having licences. Their family members have never had licences. Their friends don't have licences. So it's sort of like a bit of a white fella thing that people think, well, why do we need that? So also there's a lack of government services. So there's a lack of Department of Transport officers or Department of Transport people to go and talk to about it. Often you have to go to a police station and so people don't really like going into the police station to talk about their driving. Sometimes people don't feel comfortable speaking English and a lot of the Department of Transport materials are only in English and not in local languages and also there's lots of forms to fill out and that sort of thing. Um, the other thing is that it costs money to apply for a driver's licence. It costs money to sit the test and then you also need a suitable vehicle and sometimes people don't have the right vehicle that they can go and, and take in. So it can be yeah, a lot harder for people to go in to an office, sit a test, either writing it on the computer and then also have a suitable car to practice in that, um, that you can take a police officer or a Department of Transport officer in your car with you to do your test. Why are some of the reasons people need to drive in remote communities? Yeah, so I found this so fascinating because I think the um, politicians, the people who make the law, live in Perth. And the idea is, you know, you need your licence. If you don't do it, you get in trouble. And if you don't have a licence, then you're supposed to catch the train, catch the bus, um, you know, ride your bike, get a lift with one of your family members. But the problem is, is that if you live in a remote town in the Pilbara or the Kimberley, often there's no public transport offer options. There's no buses or trains. Um, you can't ride your bike because it's just too far the distances and there's, you know, sandy dirt tracks that would be really hard. And it's really um, hot. Yeah, and really hot. And it just is impossible, really. So people rely on their cars so much. And also people who live in remote communities, they need to get into town. They need to get into town for shopping, to go to medical services, to go to court, to go and conduct business, to go to Centrelink, see their friends and family members. And the other thing is that people need to travel into further remote regions from the people who I've spoken to, to conduct cultural business, so sorry business or other cultural business that there's just no other way of getting there apart from um, driving a car. And can you end up in prison for driving unlicensed? Yeah, you can. Um, so some magistrates give people quite a few chances and some magistrates after three or four times put people in prison and as it, probably most people know, in WA you can only go to prison for a minimum of six months. So if you do get a prison sentence, you're going to be away from your family your friends, your um, your kids, your, any work or cultural obligations for a minimum of six months. So in my view, that's really disproportionate. It can really affect people's lives more than possibly the lawmakers or the judges and magistrates realise. So, I mean, that seems extraordinary that for driving unlicensed, people can end up part of the criminal justice system in prison. I guess, do you, in your research, propose some alternatives to imprisonment or to having that six-month uh, mandatory 
amount of time in, as a sentence? Yes. One of the things that I've been advocating for during my work at the ALS is for the once someone has a fine, there's a whole lot of options that the police can go through or the fines people can go through. And one of them is to suspend your licence as part of a punishment. And so the government has just brought in some legislation to change that, to stop people in the region losing their licence based on fines only. So I think that's a really great step that the government's taken. There's a few other things that I've been advocating for through my work at ALS. One of them, we're calling a regional permit scheme. So basically we're saying that all these problems I'm talking about, that's fine if you live in the city. If you live in Perth, then you can jump all those hoops. You've got to get your ID, you've got to pay your money, you've got to go into the office, all those sorts of things. But if you do live in the regions, they should make it easier for you to get your licence. should cost less, should be um, less than all those hours you have to do to drive before you get your licence. That should all be lower so that people in the regions can make it easier for them to get their licence. And the other thing is that the extraordinary driver licences are quite narrow. So often what people do is they apply for an extraordinary driver's licence or an EDL when they don't have a full licence. But it's quite limited under the law as to what you can do. It really relates to medical treatment or employment. And so we've been advocating for Aboriginal people to be able to, for the magistrates we have to take into their cultural obligations in relation to getting an EDL. Alice, can you tell us, do you have a position or are you advocating for any changes to that six months mandatory term of imprisonment. It seems extraordinary that there, you know, you, I'm pretty sure listeners can differentiate between what might be a driving under the influence offence versus driving unlicensed. Yeah, so my recent research focused only on pure driving offences without any alcohol involved or any um, dangerous driving involved. Cause I think there are two different categories. Because basically what I say is that it's a victimless offence. You're not hurting anybody. If you drive into town to buy some nappies for your baby, mm. you're not hurting anybody. Mm. So that's been distinguished from offences where it is dangerous. It is really dangerous to drive when you're drunk or um, speeding or not having an appropriate vehicle. I did want to ask, um, you talk about the conflict between Aboriginal law and Australian law. I just wanted to see if you could explain a little bit more about that. Yes, obviously um, I'm not Aboriginal, I'm modular from down Perth way. But what I've been told from clients is that often two things. So one is that the any cultural business or any funerals, excuse me, or story time will always take precedence over someone listening to a white fellow magistrate and saying you can't drive. And the second thing is that I've been told often is that if you have an elder who in some regions, you know, you have to listen to what they say and their position of authority for you, if they say, well, you're the least drunk, you have to drive, the person says, oh, I can't do I've lost my licence. If that person says, well, we've got no other option, you're the one who has to drive for us, then that person can't can't say no. And so that cultural obligation is going to come first. And then I've, so I've said that to magistrates lots of times. And the magistrates do understand that, but it's not a defence to doing it. So it makes it really tricky where the Whitefellow legal system and whichever region um, we're dealing with, it really, yeah, there is a tension. So we're just going to take a quick break and we're going to listen to a song. We'll be listening to Shut Up and Drive by Rihanna.
4.30 p.m. listening to Cholula and Saru on Deadly Justice. Alice, I also notice part of your work is also looking at kind of preventative non-legislative reform. What are some of the other things that could be done by community, by service providers and by government to try and prevent um, people, or at least try and support people being licensed? Yeah, so I think having um, having local people involved in licensing has worked really well. In Robin, there's a group called the Red Dirt Driving Academy, and they have, over the last few years, it might be, might be a bit more than that now, have licensed so many people. So they've really helped people from woe to go right from the beginning of getting the requisite ID documents all the way up to practising, learning, doing the hours, and then getting a full licence. So I think having local people rather than you know, government employees flying in and flying out or police officers doing it um, is a really important thing. Also, if people, um, 
you know, speak language and need some help with their with the English forms and things, and that you know, local people can help with that. Um, I'm also so have been saying that I think it should be reduced fees. So if you're on Centrelink or if you don't have a lot of money, I think that the the Department of Transport should make things a bit cheaper. It's also really expensive to register a car, and so um, the ALS has been saying that if you know, if you're in Perth and, and you've got a job and you can pay your rego, then that's fine. But if you're in the regions and you're getting Centrelink and you don't have much money to pay the rego, which I think can be, you know, like 800 bucks or 1000 bucks, then that should be looked at. And so there should be a lesser fee if you live in a regional area. They're all very common sense changes. Um, it probably makes sense to most of our listeners. Do you have any other uh, legislative reform proposals that you've kind of looked into? Yeah, so um, there's two other ones. One of them is the removal of the life license disqualification process. So a lot of people have had a license in the past and then they've lost it, um, you know, due to various reasons, to driving against the rules and possibly driving while being drunk. But then sometimes those lives change and, and they, you know, they want to get their license back for work, business, you know, ranger work maybe, or um, looking after kids. And so at the moment, it's a really long, difficult system. You have to go up to the district court, the big court. You've got to fill out all this paperwork. And it makes it really difficult for people to have a second chance. So I think that that system should be made easier so that people can have a chance to turn their life around. And the other one is that there's this thing called mandatory accumulation of suspension. So if you're just, you know, young fellow, if you're just a teenager and you drive, then you lose your um, licence for nine months. And then if you do something again, if you drive again and you commit another driving offence, you lose your licence again for another nine months. And it, and it might be very soon after, but what happens is you have to add it on. So there's nine months plus nine months plus nine months plus nine months. So sometimes um, people, even before they turn 18, have got all these months and months and months on their record, which means that they can't even apply for a licence in the first place. So that just sort of seems to be another thing where people should be able to get a second chance if they have made some mistakes in the past, if they've got an opportunity then um, we should give them that opportunity to have a second chance. What would you be suggesting to listeners who want to see some of these changes come into place? Yeah, so I have been doing a bit of advocacy with the state government and trying to get sort of all different stakeholders on board. I think also in local areas, you know, if local um, Aboriginal organisations or other organisations can just start on the ground because that's always in my experience, been um, a bit more successful than, than going down to Perth and trying to get the politicians to change. But I'll keep doing that from my office at Perth ALS. But I think if people can talk to their communities and talk to maybe their local coppers and see what can be done in their regions, then um, we'll try and fix the laws. So you mentioned earlier that you're the uh, managing solicitor of the civil and human rights team at the ALS and you're based in Perth. Can you tell us a little bit about, a little bit about your team and and what work you do and what people can come to you for? Yeah, sure. So um, you're probably all aware that the ALS has got a lot of criminal lawyers, but what we do is we try and do sort of the other things that might come up, mainly in relation to the police and prisons. So we do a lot of police complaints and we try and keep the police accountable. So, you know, if the police have been a bit rough with you or done the wrong thing by you, then we have lawyers who come up to the regions. We have a lawyer who goes to the Pilbara, a lawyer who goes to the East Kimberley, West Kimberley, Goldfields, Midwest Gascoigne and the Southwest, and they can talk to you about making a complaint about the police. And we get quite a lot of people who have been assaulted by police and we really try and hold the police to account. Also, sometimes if people are having a bit of a hard time in prison, if they're not getting medical services or maybe they've stayed in prison for longer than they should have, 
we can try and give you some legal advice on that. We also help people with racial discrimination matters. So if you know someone in the shops has, has searched your bag when none of the white fellas got searched or where someone might have called someone a racist name, we can make a complaint for you under the Racial Discrimination Act or the Equal Opportunity Act. We also do coronial inquests. So if you have a loved one who has passed away and you're going to go through the coroner's court, and sometimes, some of the times that goes to a court hearing. We can be the lawyers who can stand up and talk for you and make sure you get all the answers. And then pretty much anything else where you just think that doesn't seem fair or um, you know, some government person is encroaching on local people's human rights, then we try and step in and we try and um, help people out. That was Alice Barta from the Aboriginal Legal Service of Western Australia and from the Civil and Human Rights team. The ALS's number is one eight hundred. 019900. That's 1800019900. Thanks for coming onto the show and talking to us about driving matters, Alice. Been my pleasure. Great to talk to you both. Thank you for tuning in this week. Uh, we've been talking about driving and the criminal justice system. Uh, this is Tallulah and Sarush, and we'll catch you next time.